0: chapter seven part one of from sail to steam by alfred thayer mahan this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seven incidents of war and blockade service eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty two part one the congress upon her return was retained in commission though entirely useless either for fighting or blockade under modern conditions i suppose there were not yet enough of newer vessels to spare her value as a figurehead she was sent afterwards to hampton roads where in the following march she with another sailing frigate the cumberland fell helpless victims to the first confederate ironclad the staff of combatant sea officers was much changed the captain the senior three lieutenants and the midshipmen being detached smith the fourth lieutenant remained as first and in the absence of her captain on other duty commanded and fell at her death agony i was sent first to the james adger a passenger steamer then being converted in new york for blockade duty for which she was very fit but in ten days more i was moved on to the pocahontas a ship built for war a very respectable little steam corvette the only one of her class if such a bull as a class of one may be excused she carried one ten-inch gun and four thirty-two pounders all smooth-bores there was besides one small nondescript rifled piece upon which we looked with more curiosity than confidence indeed unless memory deceived the projectiles from it were quite as apt to go end over end as true it was rarely used when i joined the pocahontas was lying off the washington navy yard in the eastern branch of the potomac on duty connected with the patrol of the river the virginia bank of which was occupied by the confederates who were then erecting batteries to dispute the passage of vessels After one excursion downstream in this employment, the ship was detached to the combined expedition against Port Royal, South Carolina, the naval part of which was under the command of Flag Officer DuPont. The point of assembly was Hampton Roads, whither we shortly proceeded after filling with stores and receiving a new captain, Percival Drayton, a man greatly esteemed in the service of the day, and a South Carolinian. "'Coincidentally with us, but independently as to association, "'the steam-sloop Seminole, slightly larger, also started. "'We outstripped her, and as we passed a position "'where the Confederates were believed to be fortifying, "'our captain threw in a half-dozen shells. "'No reply was made. "'And we went on. "'Within a half-hour we heard firing behind us, "'apparently two-sided. "'The ship was turned round and headed up river in a few minutes we met the seminole her men still at the guns a few ropes dangling loose showing that she had as they say not been exchanging salutes we had stirred up the hornets and she had got the benefit quite uselessly her captain evidently felt by his glum face and short answers to our solicitous hail he was naturally put out for no good could have come beyond showing the position of the enemy's guns while an awkward hit might have sent her back to the yard and lost her her share in the coming fray, one of the earliest in the war, and at that instant the only thing in sight on the naval horizon. As no harm resulted, the incident would not be worth mentioning, except for a second occasion, which I will mention later, in which we gave the Seminoles' captain cause for grim dissatisfaction the gathering of the clans the ship of war and the transports laden with troops in the lower chesapeake had of course a strange element of excitement for war even in its incipiency was new to almost all present and the enthusiasm aroused by a great cause and approaching conflict was not balanced by that solemnizing outlook which experience gives we lived in an atmosphere of blended exultation and curiosity of present novelty and glowing expectation but business soon came upon us in its ordinary lines for we were not two days clear of the capes in early november when there came on a gale of exceptional violence the worst of it at midnight it lasted for forty-eight hours and must have occasioned great anxiety to the heads of the expedition for among the curious conglomerate of heterogeneous material constituting both the ships of war and transports there were several river steamers, some of them small. Being utterly unpractised in such movements an almost entire dispersal followed. In fact, I dare say many of the transport captains asked nothing better than to be out of the other people's way. The Pocahontas found herself alone next morning, but though small and slow, she was a veritable sea-bird for wind and wave. Not so all." One of our extemporized ships of war, rejoicing in the belligerent name of Isaac Smith, and carrying eight fairly heavy guns, which would have told in still water, had to throw them all overboard, and her share in the subsequent action was limited to a single long piece, rifled, I believe, and to towing a sailing corvette in the column there were some wrecks and some gallant rescues the most conspicuous of which was that of the battalion of marines embarked on board the governor a steamer as i recollect not strictly of the river order but like those which ply outside on the boston and maine coasts she went down but not before her living freight had been removed by the sailing frigate sabine the first lieutenant of the latter now the senior rear-admiral on the retired list of the navy Soon afterwards relieved Drayton in command of the Pocahontas, so that I then heard at first hand many particulars which I wish I could now repeat in his well-deserved honor. His distinguished share in the rescue was of common notoriety, the details only we learned from his modest but interesting account. The deliverance was facilitated by the two vessels being on soundings, the governor anchored, and then the Sabine ahead of her dropping down close to the ground-tackle of our naval ships as we abundantly tested during the war would hold through anything if the bottom let the anchor grip with very few exceptions all were saved officers and privates but their clothes except those they stood in were left behind the colonel was a notorious martinet as well as something of a character and a story ran that one of the subalterns had found himself at the start unable to appear in some detail of uniform his trunks having gone astray a good soldier never separates from his baggage said the colonel gruffly on hearing the excuse after various adventures common to missing personal effects the lieutenant's trunks turned up at port royal he looked sympathetically at the colonel's shorn plumes and meagre array and said reproachfully colonel where are your trunks a good soldier should never separate from his baggage but doubtless to follow it to the bottom of the sea would be an excess of zeal not long afterwards i was shipmate with an assistant surgeon who had been detailed for duty on board the governor and had passed through the scenes of anxiety and confusion preceding the rescue he told me one or two amusing incidents an order being given to lighten the ship, four marines ran into the cabin where he was lying, seized a marble-topped table, dropped the marble top on deck, and threw the wooden legs overboard. There was also on board a very young naval officer barely out of the academy. He was of Dutch blood and name, from central Pennsylvania, I think. Although without much experience, he was of the constitutionally self-possessed order, which enabled him to be very useful. After a good deal of exertion he also came into the cabin. The surgeon asked him how things looked. "'I think she will last about half an hour,' he replied, and then composedly lay down and went to sleep. There was in the hero of this anecdote a vein of eccentricity even then, and he eventually died insane and young. I knew him only slightly, but familiarly as to face. He had mild blue eyes and curly brown hair, with a constant half-smile in his eyes as well as mouth. In temperament he was Dutch to the backbone, at least as we imagine Dutch. A comical anecdote was told me of him a few years later illustrating his self-possession. Cool, to impudence. He was serving on one of our big steam sloops, a flagship at the time, and had charge of working the cables on the gun-deck when anchoring. Going into a port where the water was very deep—Rio de Janeiro, I believe—the chain cables got away, as the expression is, control was lost, and shackle after shackle tore out of the households, leaping and thumping, rattling and roaring, stirring a lot of dust besides. Indeed, the violent friction of iron against iron in such cases not infrequently generates a stream of sparks. The weight of twenty fathoms of this linked iron mass hanging outside, aided by the momentum already established by the anchor's fall through a hundred feet, of course drags after it all that lies unstoppered within. I need not tell those who have witnessed such a commotion that the orderly silence of a ship of war breaks down somewhat one who has any right to speak, shouts, and repeats in rapid succession, haul to that chain, why the something or other don't you haul to, while the unhappy compressor men, saving their own wind to help their arms, struggle wildly with the situation under a storm of obloquy. The admiral, by this time we had admirals, was a singular man, something of a lawyer, acute thinking he knew just how far he might go in any case and given at times to taking liberties with subordinates which were not to them always as humorous as they seemed to him in this instance he miscalculated somewhat he was on deck at the moment and when the chain had been at last stopped and secured he said to the captain alfred send for the young man in charge of those chains and give him a good setting down ask him what he means by letting such things happen ride him down like a main tack alfred like the main tack Uh, the main tack is the chief rope controlling the biggest sail in the ship and at times close on the wind it has to be got down into place by the brute force of half a hundred men inch by inch pull by pull this is called riding down and is clearly a process the reverse of conciliatory the dutchman was sent for and soon his questioning blue eyes appeared over the hatch-combing alfred I, as my own name is alfred i may explain that i was not that captain alfred was a mild person and certainly did not like his job he could not have come up to the admiral's standard the latter saw it and intervened perhaps you had better leave it to me i'll settle him fixing his eyes on the offender he said sternly what do you mean by this sir "'Why the hell did you not stop that chain?' This exordium was doubtless the prelude to a fit oratorical display. But the culprit, looking quietly at him, replied simply, "'How the hell could I?' This was a shift of wind for which the admiral was unprepared. He was taken flat back, like a screaming child receiving a glass of cold water in his face. After a moment's hesitation he turned to the captain, and said meekly yet with evident humorous consciousness of a checkmate that's true alfred how the hell could he still while the defence implied in the lieutenant's question is logically unimpeachable it does not follow that the method of the admiral as distinct from his manner which need not be excused was irrational the impulse to uh, reprimand applied at the top where ultimate responsibility rests is transmitted through the intervening links down to the actual culprits and takes effect for future occasions as marriott in one of his amusing passages says the master's violence made the boatswain violent, which made the bosun's mate violent and the captain of the forecastle also all which is practically exemplified by the laws of motion communicated from one body to another and as the master swore so did the boatswain swear and the boatswain's mate and the captain of the forecastle and all the men an entertaining practical use of this transmission of energy was made by an acquaintance of mine in china going to bed one night he found himself annoyed by a mosquito within the net he got up provided himself with the necessities for his own comfort during the period of discomfort which he projected for others and called the servant whose business it was to have crushed the intruder. Him he sent in search of the man next above him, him in turn for another, and so on until he reached the head of the domestic hierarchy. When the whole body was assembled, he told them that they were summoned to receive the information that one piecey mosquito was inside his net, owing to the neglect of pointing to the culprit this done they were dismissed in calm assurance that in future no mosquito would disturb his night's rest and that the desirable castigation of the offender might be entrusted to his outraged companions after the gale subsided the pocahontas proceeded for the rendezvous just before reaching which we fell in with a coal schooner though a good fighting ship she carried only sixty-three tons of coal anthracite for that alone we then used to burn the amount seems too absurd for belief and it constituted a very serious embarrassment on such duty as that of the south carolina and georgia coasts to economize so as to remain as long as possible away from the base at port royal and yet to have the ship ready for speedy movement was a difficult problem indeed insoluble we used to meet it by keeping fires so low when lying inside the blockaded rivers that we could not move promptly this was a choice between evils which the event justified but which might have been awkward had the confederates ever made a determined attempt at boarding with largely superior force in several steamers as happened at galveston and once even by pulling boats in a georgia river under steam the battery could be handled anchored an enemy could avoid it with this poor coal endurance as the modern expression has it the captain decided to fill up as he could we therefore took the schooner in tow and were transferring from her when the sound of cannonading was heard evidently the attack had begun and it was incumbent to get in not only on general principles but for the captain's own reputation for although in service he was too well known to be doubted The outside world might see only that he was a South Carolinian. It was recognition of this, I doubt not, that led Admiral Dupont, when we passed the flagship after the action, to hail aloud, Captain Drayton, I knew you would be here. A public expression of official confidence. We were late, however, as it was, probably because our short coal supply had compelled economical steaming though as to this my memory is uncertain the pocahontas passed the batteries after the main attack in column on an elliptical course had ceased but before the works had been abandoned and being alone we received proportionate attentions for the few moments of passage the enemy's fire was good line but high our mainmast was irreparably wounded but the hull and crew escaped after the action there followed the usual scene of jollification. The transports had remained outside, and now steamed up, bands playing, troops a and with the general expenditure of wind from vocal organs, which seems the necessary concomitant of such occasions. And here the Pocahontas again brought the seminole to grief. She had anchored, but we kept under way, steaming about through the throng, drayton had binoculars in hand and while himself conning the ship was lively interested in what was passing around i believe also that uh, though an unusually accomplished officer professionally he had done a good deal of staff duty had less than the usual deck habit of the his period besides men used mostly to sails seemed to think steamers could get out of any scrape at any moment however that may be after a glance to see that we were rightly headed for a clear opening he began gazing about through his glasses to the right hand and to the left he had lost thought of the tide and in such circumstances as ours a very few seconds does the business when he next looked we were sweeping down on the seminole without a chance of retreat there was nothing but to go fast ahead and save the hulls at least from collision her flying jib boom came in just behind our mainmast we had only two masts and as the current of course was setting us down steadily the topping lifts of our huge main boom caught her jib boom down came one of the big blocks from our masthead, narrowly missing the captain's head while we took out of her all the head booms as far as the bowsprit cap leaving them dragging in helpless confusion by her side then we anchored It is a nuisance to have to clear a wreck and repair damages, and the injured party does not immediately recover his equanimity after such a mishap, especially coming fresh upon a former instance of trouble occasioned barely a fortnight before. But after a victory all things are forgiven, and the more so to a man of Drayton's well-deserved popularity. A little later in the day he went on board the flagship to visit the admiral. When I met him at the gangway, upon his return, I had many questions to ask him, and, among others, have you learned who commanded the enemy? Yes, he replied, with a half-smile. It was my brother. Very soon afterwards he left us, before we again quitted port. He was dissatisfied with the Pocahontas, partly on account of her coal supply, and the captain of the Pawnee, then going home, he obtained command of her. The Pawnee was sui generis, in this, like the Pocahontas, only a good deal more so, representing somebody's fad. I cannot vouch for the details of her construction, but, as I heard, she was not only extremely broad in the beam, giving great battery space, which was plain to see, but the bilge on each side was reported to come lower than the keel, making, as it were, two hulls, side by side, so that a sarcastic critic remarked, one good point about her is that if she takes the ground her keel at least is protected like all our vessels of that time she was of wood owing to her build she had for her tonnage very light draught and heavy battery and so was a capital fighting ship in still shoal waters but in a seaway she rolled so rapidly as to be a wretched gun platform Her first lieutenant assured me that in heavy weather a glass of water could not get off the table. Before it has begun to slide on one roll she is back on the other and catches it before it can start. This description was perhaps somewhat picturesque, impressionist, as we now say, but it successfully conveyed the idea, the object of all speech and impressions however satisfactory for glasses, not too full, it may be imagined that under such conditions it would be difficult to draw sight on a target between rolls. Whatever her defects, the Pawnee was admirably adapted for the inland work of which there was much in those parts behind the sea islands, and she continued so employed throughout the war. I met her there as late as the last six months of it. But she was not reproduced and remains to memory only an incident of the speculative views and doubting progresses of the decade before the war of secession end of chapter seven part one